speaking with composer Christoph Beck, uh, who has constantly been one of the most in-demand composers for the entirety of his career, and his versatility across all genres is unmatched. Some of his versatility can be heard in scores like The Hangover, Edge of Tomorrow, Frozen, The Muppets, Good Kill, Red Army, Cake, Get Hard, and now he is the sound behind Marvel's newest superhero with Ant-Man. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for your time and for uh, speaking today. That's my pleasure. So uh, to start, I would, I guess, love to go back to your start and uh, kind of growing up, what did you, uh, or when did you know that music was going to be your career path and, and at what point did you decide that being a composer was what you wanted to do? Uh, being a film composer probably is what you mean there. Um, right, film composer. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I grew up really wanting to be a rock star. I fantasized about, uh, you know, playing stadiums and, and having hit records. <laughs> and um, I, I really didn't think about film composing until um, it was really time to think about a career and it was time to think about, you know, what, what I was going to do to earn money. And I, I knew I wanted it to be music. Mm-hmm. And I ended up... Um, uh, as as a result of my sort of doing some research into the different things I thought I might be good at, um, I purely by chance came across the uh, a pamphlet for the USC film scoring program, which at the time in the early '90s when it was in its infancy, and uh, it was just a one-year program. What I really wanted to do was actually go to NYU in the musical theater program. I was really into musicals mm-hmm. at the time. But that program only took students every couple of years. They would take a, a group of students and work with them for two years and then, and then take a, a new group of students in. And it was an off year, so if I wanted to do that program, I would have had to wait a year. So I thought, okay, I'll just check out this film scoring thing and see what happens. <laughs> of course, uh, I, n- I never left L.A. Wow. <laughs> um, so so were, you, were you born in L.A.? Or born in California? I'm, I'm Canadian. I was born in Montreal. Oh, wow. And I've lived in several cities in Canada before uh, coming up to uh, the U.S. for college. Wow. Um, so did you have any favorite films or composers that you kind of latched onto at a young age? Well, um, Star Wars made a huge impression on me, as, as it did Obviously, many, yeah. <laughs> many composers of, of my generation. I mean, we all, we all grew up with that. Right. And I think, um, uh, you know, perhaps that's one of the reasons why you see, for example, in TV, a bit of a resurgence of live orchestra. Um, because the people our age, uh, who are in middle age now, who grew up with uh, with uh, Star Wars and what that music did for um, kind of turning around uh, what had been a very long trend at the time of mm-hmm. moving away from orchestral scores. Um, so you got a lot of uh, you got a lot of people in positions of power at the studios now who uh, who grew up on Star Wars. Um, but but for me that was just music I loved and I never I never really thought about um, actually doing it um, until, again, until that time when I came across that pamphlet. Wow. Um, and that's when I really started paying attention to film music and uh, discovered a whole world of, uh, of composers, incredibly talented and creative composers. Uh, a big influence on me was Jerry Goldsmith, who was uh, a teacher of mine, actually. He came and taught our class for the whole year. I think it's the only year he ever taught anyone. Wow. Um, I don't think he liked it very much. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, he, uh, he left a big impression on me, particularly the importance of a, a strong theme. And uh, he, was, he was the best at making, at being very efficient. He could, right. he could spin out, you know, an enormous amount of music out of 
very, very small ideas. Um, and uh, that, that's something that I still take with me today. Right. And, and, and what I really love about your style is that it seems you can really adapt to any genre of filmmaking. And you've kind of been the go-to composer for uh, comedies and romantic comedies, and you do such a great job with them. But I feel like comedy is probably the hardest thing to score. So what is your approach to scoring, I guess, comedy, and how can a comedy score be successful? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, fundamentally, regardless of genre, of movie, regardless of medium, you know, TV, commercials, video games, it's all storytelling through music. Right. So the fundamental issues are really the same. Um, for example, you know, which, which character's point of view should the music take in this particular scene? Uh, how can the music bring an additional layer of a story um, by maybe playing against what's on the screen or by maybe uh, providing a little additional emotion to what's on the screen as opposed to just mimicking what's on the screen. All, all these things carry through no matter what medium the composer is composing in or no matter what genre it is. Mm -hmm. um, the, the things that, that I think distinguish the genres from each other are really stylistic things. Um, you know, in a, um, in a broad family comedy made by a big studio, uh, there are certain tropes that, um, that are like signposts uh, for the audience to identify with um, a kind of mainstream Hollywood sound. Right, right. Um, doing an indie film, an indie comedy, uh, the style is different. Um, you know, instead of a big orchestra, it's going to be probably a smaller ensemble or maybe electronics. Um, and that's, that's, of course, a result of uh, indie films' lower budgets also. Um, but, uh, you know, it, aside from instrumentation and aside from um, stylistic hallmarks, uh, the fundamental process is the same. So, and I, I absolutely, I agree with you completely. Uh, but another genre, though, which before we jump into Ant-Man, I'd love to talk to you about because, and it's interesting that you mentioned that you, you had this love for musical theater because you've done some two pretty big musical, oh, few musicals, but for Disney, uh, some tiny film, I think, called Frozen you did. Yeah. Never never really heard of it. And then you, and the Muppets. Oh, I thought you were going to say Burlesque. <laughs> and Burlesque, yeah, Burlesque. <laughs> the Muppets, Muppets Most Wanted. Now, all these movies are, you know, they're full-on musicals. They have uh, these big numbers, big song numbers. How do you approach something like this when you know that the songs are the star of the show? Is it a challenge to structure a score with uh, such prominent songs kind of grabbing the spotlight every 10 minutes or so? Uh, you know, it's it's not really a challenge, except that uh, you know I don't get to write the tunes for those right, particular yeah. particular bits, and you know I can I can live with that. Um, it's um, you know the first thing I do at the beginning of every project is is at least I try to if there's time and if I have the you know the the, the wherewithal and discipline to sit down and do this before just diving into writing cues, mm -hmm. um, which is most of the time. Um, you know, I'll, before I even start writing any cues, I'll have a a few themes. Uh, written, and uh, that that sort of forms uh, like a, a sort of a bible for the musical score of of um, of the project. And when there's a musical, all that means is you know I I start with a few of those tunes already written, and um, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, the people who make musicals really like the idea of 
uh, bits from the songs uh, uh, informing um, how the cues go mm-hmm. to to quote tunes to uh, develop material um, and you know I, I enjoy the challenge um, in Frozen I did a cue that I believe is called Coronation Day which is the um, which is a, a kind of jaunty uh, you know, here we are, another beautiful day in Arendelle type of a feeling right, uh, right. on the morning of uh, of the coronation. And what that is, is a major key reharmonization of the song we just heard, which was the Ice Worker song. Uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of subtle because uh, the reharmonization is pretty drastic and it really feels different when you do that tune in the major key as opposed to a minor key. But it's there. And even though it's subtle, um, I, I really enjoy the challenge of working with material and transforming it into something else. Right, and I and I really love. Uh, I mean, your score to Frozen is fantastic, and I love that how Di- it, it, how Disney presented it on that deluxe edition soundtrack, where you could really kind of have it there. I mean, everyone is singing "Let It Go," but to have it there as one whole piece and kind of let it play is pretty. Uh, it, it, it's impressive to to see it in kind of that full. I am extremely thankful to Disney for including as much score as they did on the album. It was amazing. Yeah, I love that. Uh, well, because because it sold so many copies, and and you know, frankly, I don't know that four million people would have bought um, a Frozen score only CD. I think most right. of the people, we, I think we all know, most of the people buying that CD bought bought it for the songs and one song in particular. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm of course the the beneficiary of those extra royalties. <laughs> yeah, the piggyback. You know, no reason piggyback. No. Nothing wrong with piggybacking up. And <laughs> I, I, I tell Bobby all the time, you know, your 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 coattails are nice. I want to live there. <laughs> so let's uh, let's jump into to Ant Man, which is uh, you know, it's a it's a start of a brand new timeline for a Marvel superhero. Superhero, but he's also not the first superhero to has ever been on screen. We've seen many superheroes discover their powers, defeat the bad guy. So how did you approach this to make Ant Man unique? What did the movie need musically? Well, I'm actually very thankful that my first Marvel movie was Ant-Man because um, it is very much in a particular genre, and that would be a heist film. It is certainly a superhero film, Mm -hmm. um, but what sets it apart from all the other Marvel movies and from, as far as I can tell, most if not all the other superhero movies I've seen is this heist aspect. Um, and, And Marvel is sort of in the habit of exploring uh, different genres in their films. Uh, for example, the second Captain America film was really more of a political thriller. Right, which I really love. And yeah. then the other films. And even though, again, it's a superhero movie, and you know, there's guys in costumes with powers and beating the bad guys, as you said. You know, at its heart, that movie was a kind of intriguing spy thriller, um, you know, political thriller type yeah, of yeah. deal. Um, so because Ant-Man was a heist comedy... Right away, the the tone of the film, even before a note of music gets put to it, is different, and that suddenly opens the door to me being able to uh, explore that whole world of heist uh, uh, film scores, particularly from the from the heyday of those types of movies in the in the 70s, um, where I really wouldn't be able to get away with that on any other Marvel film. So I'm really thankful that, in a way, the the hook of this score, the the thing that makes people notice it and notice that it's different was kind of handed to me on a on a silver platter. Wow. Um, so um, you know, it was it was just a matter of um, 
of, of finding the right fun tone uh, and to make sure that the music, even, um, you know, even when things are a little bit serious on screen, that the music retain a sense of playfulness and fun. And uh, absolutely, and uh, because you did, you did Tower Heist, and uh, that have as another kind of little lighthearted heist film. Was there any similarities uh, there? Uh, you know, I I did notice one similarity. I was a little bit after I had done most of the work on uh, Ant Man, and of course all the work on Tower Heist, and that is that I seem to enjoy odd meters um, <laughs> for my heist comedies. I mean, uh, the main theme for Tower Heist. It's a lot less bold and heroic. It's not. It doesn't feature the brass section quite as um, triumphantly as the Ant-Man theme does. Um, <laughs> but it's also in seven four. The Ant-Man theme is in is in seven four time. Um, and uh, I, I I don't know if that's um, significant or not, but it's just something I noticed um, that I did in both movies. I think if I ever do a heist movie again, I will I will try to do it in. Uh, in, in common time as opposed to the odd time. <laughs> just to try something different. <laughs> so but I think, um, you know, uh, on Tower Heist, I, I much more deliberately and much more, <clears throat> much more forcefully tried to evoke that, that retro, old-school 70s Lalo Schifrin right. uh, yeah. heist vibe. Uh, in Ant-Man, I didn't try as hard to do it. It kind of came out in a few spots, just, you know, couldn't help it. Um, but it was not—it uh, was not something that I um, that I sought out to do the way I did Tower Heist. Um, you know, like I said, the the nature of heist movies in general sort of leads you down a path toward that sound. Um, but I I did make an effort to 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 keep the score, even though it's it's referencing some of those those old heist movie tropes. Um, that it it feels very much a score from today. Absolutely, and you mentioned your your Ant Man theme. So I know when you say that you know you have a, a movie like Marvel and you say theme, of course people conjure up the ideas of you know talking about Star Wars, but also talking about John Williams Superman and Danny Elfman's yeah. Batman. And how do you? I mean, this wasn't going to be something like Superman, but how did you approach the thematic material here? Did did he, did Ant Man need a big bold theme, or did you try to make it kind of a little bit lower key and not too bold? No, I, I, you know, the, the intent there was to go for it and, yeah. and to do a big bold theme. Um, that was what something that that was something that Marvel had requested mm -hmm. from me from the very beginning. I knew that um, the, the Marvel people, as well as Peyton Reed, the director, uh, really wanted a, a a big bold, catchy, really a superhero theme mm -hmm. uh, that you can hum as you leave the theater, and. Um, Besides that, I also knew that I had to make it just a little bit different enough from the other themes of the other movies to make it distinctive, to make it so that, you know, I, I, didn't, want, I didn't want someone to be able to just take the Ant-Man theme and just plop it into, you know, uh, the Avengers movie and, and have it kind of work. Right. You know, I, I, I wanted to write something for Ant-Man that really could only be used for Ant-Man. Um, so I think that's what led me to the more groovy aspects of, of the theme. Um, you know, the, the, the theme on the record starts with a kind of a, almost a Mancini approach with uh, um, bass flute and viola on the melody in a very kind of sneaky setting. That actually never appears in the movie that way. That's just something I did just for the album. Oh, okay. um, and I think that's, um, you know, that, 
that's another example, even though it doesn't appear in, in the film. Uh, that's a great example of, uh, you know, these, these sort of 70s touchstones that occasionally pop their way in. And you mentioned that you're, you're creating something that you wanted specifically for Ant-Man, but when you work on a Marvel film, I mean, do you have to kind of, as the composer, always keep in mind the bigger picture of their movie universe? Because they are really trying to create this interconnected world. Is there like a secret Marvel handbook that they like hand you and be like, okay, this is your, these, uh, are, these are the rules? <laughs> I wish, man, I wish. Um, no, there is no secret handbook. Um, and, you know, um, the, the, nobody really sat me down and, and sort of told me at the beginning, hey, you know, you're going to need this theme from this movie and this theme from that movie, and we just got to make sure that we... It was sort of flying by the seat of your pants, and, and you know, when we would come up with a scene, someone would be like, hey, don't we have a theme for this character? Uh, in Ant-Man, there were really two themes I needed to reference. One is the uh, Alan Silvestri Avengers theme, mm-hmm. which has a very brief but very important statement um, at the beginning of one of the uh, big action sequences. And then, uh, and then it's actually that same action sequence where Ant-Man has a little fight with the Falcon. Um, and so we tried to base that entire fight sequence on uh, the Falcon theme. Now, that's easier said than done because, <laughs> um, if I recall correctly, uh, I don't think Henry put any cues that contain the Falcon theme on the record, or if they did, it's, uh, it's a pretty subtle use of it. Right. I think... Um, I think the music editor sent me an unreleased track that had a more complete version of the Falcon theme. But even then, it was kind of short. I mean, as I understand it, it was, Falcon was you know, one of the major characters. It was kind of a side character. So the theme, uh, you know, I, and I totally get you know, how this happens because it, it's, it's you know, for me all the time, too. You know, um, you know there's there's a character on the screen and you, he may or may not need a complete theme later on for some other composer to adapt. But meanwhile, you only need eight bars. You write eight bars. Um, so there was only eight bars of that. Um, and you know, Henry, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, and you want to tell me where the the, the bars (laughs) nine through 16 are, uh, I'm all ears. (laughs) I'll let him know because I'll probably talk to him about pixels. (laughs) Um, but before we wrap up, uh, another side of the industry that you know I don't have any experience personally with because I'm not a composer, but and it's kind of what people read in the media is that it seems that like uh, composers are constantly in this game of uh, musical chairs as directors and producers try to find the right sound for their picture, and everybody goes yeah. through it. You know, you you were on Terminator and then Lauren, and then you took over on Ant Man and Edge of Tomorrow. So is that is that, a, is that a stressful part of the job trying to? I mean, do you finally kind of release this big sigh of relief when you finally get to sit down and go, okay, I'm on the project and I can start writing? I mean, is that part of it? No, dude, dude, sometimes a big sigh of relief comes when I get fired, honestly. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's Terminator. I, I, best way I can explain that one is uh, he just didn't like my stuff. I mean, that, really? that's, all I can, that's all I can think of, you know. Um, I, I, I took a couple of big swings at it, um, doing a couple of reels twice, and... Um, it just, you know, um, most of the time when I write something that I think is good, um, other people also think it's good. Uh, but sometimes I'm wrong, or sometimes I collaborate with a person whose taste is so different from mine that we just can't connect and we're just not a good match. And I, I just think it was that simple. It wasn't anything political or, or anything nefarious or anything like that. Right, right. It was just, uh, it was just you know, the main, the main creative force behind that movie uh, I was just not into my stuff. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, you know, I haven't seen the finished product yet. I 
probably will at some point. Um, but, um, you know, I, I understand Lauren wrote a great score, and, uh, you know, I look forward to hearing it one day. Yeah, it's, uh, I talked to Lauren about it. It's really, uh, I mean, he, he came in late, too, because you were on it for a while. But then on, yeah. on Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry about that, Lauren. <laughs> on Edge of Tomorrow, you came in after, I think, Ramin was attached to it. So you're on the opposite side of that. Is that right. Do you find yourself uh, working better on, like, a shorter time crunch, or do you like a little bit more time? Yeah, except that wasn't, except that was actually six months. Oh right. Um, because because their their schedule was so, um, it, it was I don't want to say it was unrealistic, but the, but their when when they did hire me, it was going to be like that. It was going to be a, a quick in and out mm-hmm. replacement score, the likes of which I have done a few times in my career. Um, but because of the changes they kept making uh, to the cut and some reshoots and. Um, uh, effect shots, all the usual stuff that affects the schedule of a, of a Hollywood, of, of Hollywood blockbusters. Uh, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, but the the two months kind of stretched into four months and stretched into six months. So, all all this uh, allowed me the time to really work with with Doug Lyman, who is a great director, but also very tough to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, has has b- very demanding and exacting standards. And um, in the end, I was glad I had the extra time uh, to get that right. Wow. Well, that's yeah. I, I just find it fascinating that whole you know, trying to. The hey, you know, one thing that's interesting about uh, being on the other end of it is that it's a great position to be in because you almost can do no wrong. <laughs> um, because the decision to fire a composer is, I mean, it's a hard one. Yeah. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. You sort of have to. If you're if you're the filmmaker that's making that decision, you're kind of admitting you made a mistake by hiring the wrong person. So now you're bringing in a new person, and you know it comes time to listen to the replacement composer's music for the first time. It almost doesn't matter what the composer writes. It's going to be beloved, because now that same filmmaker is in a position where if he made a wrong choice a second time, that just looks really bad, and that can be... Uh, that, can make a, uh, that can be embarrassing or even humiliating for someone like that. And so there's all this... Um, extra psychological baggage um, that really works in your favor as a composer, just in terms of people's receptiveness to your ideas. Um, so being the replacement composer, uh, there's this great honeymoon period where you can sort of do no wrong for the first couple of weeks uh, because they're just, they're just so relieved that it's somebody different. It might not even be better. It's just different, you know? Um, and uh, so it's, uh, it's a great position to be in. And uh, but I mean, has there ever been a situation where the second composer has been fired for? I mean, they would never do that because of budget, probably, right? Like you're kind of. Oh no, man! Uh, Pink Panther. I was hired, then fired, and David Newman was hired, and then he was fired, and I was brought back. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so I mean, it really can make your head spin, um, and uh, you know, I don't really know the story behind yeah. a lot of the Pink Panther stuff. I just know that you know, what happened on my end. Um, but that was just kind of crazy scheduling conflicts bouncing around. Yeah. I and think. Yeah. <laughs> Standing there going, well, 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 look who came crawling yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, to, to wrap everything up, um, it's, uh, I'd love to ask composers this one question. Uh, if you could score any film ever made, pretending the original score never existed, uh, which film would you choose? Wow. Um, I, do I do I have to pretend it never existed, or do I get to actually believe it never existed? 
Uh, I don't know. Which, a lot of people have a problem with the question because they're like, "Oh, I love that score too much. I would never want to," you know. Right. That's why I would. That's why I would want like a Men in Black memory eraser machine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because then I could say Star Wars. Then I could say Star Wars. Okay. Yeah. No. You. And then and then. Uh, <laughs> no, who cares what John? Williams, I don't even know who John Williams is. Exactly. Like, who is that guy? That's All the- I see is an amazing space movie with uh, an amazing palette of uh, of of instrumentation and. Uh, um, uh, a big, bold style that gets composers very excited. Uh, you know, if I if I had an inkling that that same movie was scored by someone, you know, the likes of John Williams, I think that would be uh, that would be a, a deal breaker right there. There's no way I could do it. Right. Um, but honestly, if if I get to erase my memory, then uh, yeah, I would, I would choose. That's the idea. Yeah, that's the idea of pretending or believing it never existed. Yeah. So that's right. a great answer. Um, Chris, well, thank you so much for your time. It was such a great, fun pleasure to chat with you today. And, awesome. Uh, Thanks. Me too.